Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. We are going to be in the Gospel of Luke today if you want to turn there. I want to start off just telling you guys a story about one of, kind of one of my favorite stories from when I was a kid. And uh, we always, I think most of us have these stories, but I'm an old dude, so I grew up in a, in a time when things were a little bit safer and a little less scary in the world. So we did a lot more running around our neighborhoods and uh, we were a lot less uh, policed by our parents than uh, probably kids are today. But we had this game we used to play where we liked to kind of all gather around and figure out uh, which one of the kids in the group would have to go and knock on someone's door and then run away. And so this was a game we loved to play. We thought it was fun. It was a little bit scary because you were doing something that you knew was a little bit inappropriate, but like in a mildly, you know, mildly inappropriate way. So not something that was going to get you thrown behind bars or, or get you whooped by your parents, but probably something that was just a little bit on the edge. And so uh, we would go around the neighborhood, but uh, I don't know if it was like this when you grew up, but most neighborhoods I, I find have at least one house where there's kind of a reclusive guy that no one really knows what he does. They don't really know who he is. And there's a little bit of speculation about what goes on behind the walls of that, that house. And the, the curtains are usually closed. And uh, usually there's one or two houses on a street that people go, I don't know about those people. And if you were in our group, that was the house you didn't want to have to knock on the door of because it was the scariest house on the street. But uh, we, we would always work it out. And if you were one of the older kids in the group, you were really smart and you went really quickly and took an easy house. And then you, you waited for the guys that were a little younger, a little more scared, and you gave them the really scary houses. And in this particular case, we had waited for a young friend of ours who was the youngest in the group. And we, we, we set him up completely to have to go knock on the door that was just around the corner from our block at this one house that was just a little bit scary with a single man that lived there that was a little bit older and seemed a little rough around the edges. And so we sent him up to go knock on this door. And, and you know how that works, where everyone's kind of scattered around the yards across the street and around. And we're watching. And as he's walking up to that yard, he's looking at us and he's creeping up to the, to the door. And he raised his hand and he goes like this to knock on the door. And just about that time, the door opened. And the guy's standing there and he goes, <gasps> and he just screams, I'm not ready yet. <laughs> And of course, you know, the guy that was standing at the door didn't care whether he was ready or not, um, but he was completely exposed and completely nervous and, and panicked, in panic ran away and the rest of us hid and didn't come to his rescue whatsoever. Uh, have you ever had a plan that you thought was a good plan going in and then you found out that everything changed? All your expectations went a different direction. Everything you thought was going to happen actually uh, got scrambled and turned upside down. And yet in the end, you know, of all the times we played that game, that's the only story I remember. Because in the midst of that turn, there was actually something scarier, something more memorable, something more exciting that happened in, uh, in that group of friends than any of the other times we'd ever played that game. Uh, today, I want us to look at a, a passage of Scripture. Scripture where 
followers of God thought they, they understood a plan. They thought they knew what was happening. They thought they knew what was coming their way. And everything got turned upside down. And it, it threw them for a loop. And, and there was a sense in which the disciples of Jesus said, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready for what, what just happened. I don't, I don't understand what's going on. And yet, that is going to turn and become something even more powerful, more exciting, more joyful than anything they ever experienced before. And so I want us to dive in here and look at this text in the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be at the very end of the book. Uh, If you know your way around the Bible, the the New Testament begins with four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Gospel just is a word that means good news. And these are four books that people wrote to tell us about Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And all four of them focus solely on the person of Jesus. The, he is he's the focus of these books. And as you work his way through, you get a huge chunk of his life. You get a chunk of his teaching. But the, the bulk of each of the four Gospels is focused on the last week of his life and this, his death on a cross and his resurrection because that's the central event in these Gospels. And what we're going to see is it's actually the central event in all of the Scriptures. And it's actually the central event in all of human history. And it's actually the central event in your life as well. And so we're going to look at that. And so this is a little bit of a longer section. And so I just want to read this story, and I want you just to, to listen in as we think about uh, this story of what happens. And I want you to, to notice the surprise and how the disciples react in this story on the road to Emmaus. So Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. That very day, and, and that very day, what it means is the very day Jesus was resurrected. That very day, Two of them, two of his disciples were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they, st- they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? who does not know the things that have happened there in these days. And Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in in word before God and before all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. And we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since all those things happened. Moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us ran to the tomb, and they found, that they found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as though he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, He took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us 
while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose, and that very hour, they returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he's even appeared to Simon Peter. Then they told him what had happened on the road, and how Jesus was made known to them in the breaking of bread. This is the word of the Lord. I love this passage. I love everything about what happens here and what's going on. And you, you catch the story of uh, the, these two men that had just witnessed all these things that had gone on in Jerusalem. And you see this phrase that's mentioned over these things. They were talking about these things. And Jesus explained these things. And, and the reason it, it gives you this kind of nebulous idea of these things is because no one had any doubt what these things were. It was such a historic, significant thing in the, in the life of Jerusalem that everyone knew. And they said these things, they knew what, exactly what they were talking about. And so here you have these two disciples. They, they, were, they had been to Jerusalem to worship. All these things had taken place. And now they were likely returning back home. And they're going on this journey. And as they do, this third man walks up to them and begins talking with them about this. They probably assumed, well, this is just another dude who had come to Jerusalem to worship at the appropriate time, and he's likely going home as well. And so as they begin to retreat, um, you see Jesus coming in. He's this third traveler, and they don't recognize him, which is kind of a weird thing, right? These guys clearly were familiar with Jesus. Clearly, they understood. And so one of the questions about this passage is, why didn't they go, wait, you're the guy? Uh, Well, one, it was probably highly unexpected at that time. There's definitely speculation whether it just was they would blinders on their eyes, they couldn't really see, whether uh, Satan somehow distracted them, whether the Lord masked uh, that for a time. It's probably the third of those three. And really in in their current uncertainty, I think what was happening here was that, that God wanted to show them at a deep level who Christ was. Not just because, because if, they, if they saw Jesus immediately, what's going to happen? Well, they're just going to freak out, run, and tell everyone else that he's resurrected, right? Which would be cool. But it may not have the depth, I think, that the Lord wanted to have it. And so I think the Lord uh, hid their eyes so that he could go and explain to them from all of the scriptures and say, this isn't just an accidental thing that happened. This isn't just a crazy event that you're going to tweet about later. This isn't just some radical thing that popped up in human history, but this was God's plan from the beginning of time that was prophesied and predicted and told about in Scripture and put into Scripture and prepared for this moment that you would understand why Jesus died and why a Savior had to come and pay the penalty on the cross. For your sins. And so I think he was wanting them to see something even deeper. And so they were unable to recognize him. It also adds drama to the story. And eventually, as they reveal that he's physically resurrected, is a pretty amazing thing. Look in verse 15 at how Jesus engages these men. I think this is fascinating. Jesus says, drew near to them. Jesus, uh, Jesus uh, went and committed to walk with them. And so these two guys are on the road and Jesus sees them and he kind of saunters up to them, catches up and then begins to walk with them and walks with them on this journey. But then Jesus begins to engage them with questions. Uh, what is it questions do? Uh, questions tend to draw out from someone else their thoughts and their feelings. And so Jesus sits down or, or as, as they're walking, Jesus comes alongside them and begins to just ask them questions hey, what is it you guys are debating? What are you talking about? And they begin to describe those things. And you notice what happens when Jesus says, uh, what is it you're talking about? And it says, they stood still looking sad. 
when, when, when you're walking on a journey, when do you stop and just stand still? Well, they were surprised. You know, like literally they're going and they're having this conversation. All of a sudden, they just, they're stopped in their tracks and they're like, dude, you came from the same place we did. Did you not hear all the crazy commotion and all the stuff that was going on? Like anyone that was in Jerusalem knew about all the stuff that went down this week. And so they begin to explain that. And to me, this is incredibly ironic and funny. When they, they look at Jesus, they're like, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who didn't know what happened this week? And, you know, Jesus is like, yeah, I, I'm sort of aware. You know, like I, 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 was, I was kind of uh, paying attention to what, what kind of things happened here in Jerusalem. So when they talk about all these things, uh, it's interesting that one commentator said that these travelers gradually revealed Jesus' identity uh, back to him. Uh, but it's interesting that it was a sensitive topic at that time. Think about if you were these two guys. What, what is it you just saw? Uh, Jerusalem was divided. Jerusalem was fighting. Uh, there were the, the, the religious leaders and the chief priests were uh, delivering him over to be condemned and crucified. There were crowds were rallying. What were the crowds screaming at Jesus before he died? Crucify him, crucify him. And so if you're one of those that was on Jesus' side and believed in Jesus, you're, you're like, well, I don't want to get on the wrong side of those guys. And so now you're walking back home on this trip going back, and all of a sudden a third guy walks up and starts going like, so what are y'all talking about? And you might be a little hesitant to be like, oh, we're, we're on the side of the guy that got killed recently, you know, a couple of days ago and was crucified. Uh, we're on the side that all the religious leaders rallied against and, and, and condemned that guy. We're, we're on his team. So you can understand these guys are sort of feeling out this conversation, right? And then they're beginning to expose this. But notice what they say about, uh, about Christ. Uh, they, they, they reveal kind of so much about him. It's, it's an amazing testimony to their understanding at this time. They said, well, it's the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was, he wasn't just a figure of their imagination. He wasn't just an appearance of God. He was a literal historic figure who had a hometown and a place he grew up and a family, but he was a person. And he says that, uh, that he was a man, he was a human being, uh, he was a prophet. Uh, it's nothing in that day uh, to, to call someone a prophet. We oftentimes refer to people that are prophetic, like, oh, that guy had a prophetic statement. It was a different thing in their culture to say he was a prophet like Moses. You got killed if you were a prophet who was wrong in that day. To say someone is a prophet is to say that you believed that you had a word from God that you could speak, let's say, the Lord to. And so when they, when they in that culture called Jesus a prophet, they were making a, a bold statement. But he was a prophet, mighty indeed, meaning he did amazing works. He healed people. He performed miracles. He released the captives. He, 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 he caused the blind to see. He made the lame to walk. He was mighty indeed. He was mighty in words. What they're saying is, you should have heard this guy teach. And when this guy sat on the sermon, sat on the mount, and began to unpack a sermon saying, blessed are the merciful. It was amazing to listen to him teach. He was mighty in word before God and all the people. And yet, what else did they reveal about him? He was the one the religious leaders, he says, condemned. He was rejected. He was put in with the criminals and those who were outcasts. He was condemned. And not only that, but he was crucified. Crucifixion was the worst death that Romans had come up with and was, was a gruesome, violent death. And Jesus was put on the cross between two other criminals and he was killed. And so they're saying, 
though he was mighty indeed, though he was a prophet, though he was an amazing teacher, though he was a spiritual leader before God and all the people, he was also condemned and he was crucified. And so they're taken aback. It's why it says they were sad. Um, and then the next verse really goes on to reveal further why, why they, they were experiencing disappointment in this. Verse 21 says, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. The word redeem is a specific word. It's talking about the Messiah. It's talking about the the Savior of the world, the one that would be sent to deliver. And and what they're saying is, we had put all our hopes on this one, thinking he was going to be the one that would deliver us. But they were thinking in political terms. We thought he would be the one that would deliver Israel from bondage to the Romans. We thought he would be the one that would bring us greater freedom, the one that would, would, would take us out from underneath the yoke of this foreign, foreign oppressive government and give us freedom to, to live amongst ourselves and to do our own thing. And so you, you can understand their grief and their sadness and kind of what they're feeling in that moment. Because as Jesus draws them out, they, they share their viewpoint. They were sad because... They had hoped he was the one that, that the Old Testament scriptures had promised would come and bring new, a new area of freedom to their people. And yet when Jesus died for them, they looked and said, well, I guess that dream needs to die too. We're never going to be free of this oppressive government. Uh, and so for them, uh, the irony here is uh, that they thought they had lost out on the Savior who's coming to bring freedom. And what we know And because the way the story is told, we already know that this is Jesus, right? They don't know this is Jesus at the time, but we do. Uh, They don't know that Jesus has been resurrected, but we do. They don't know that Jesus really is the Messiah, but we do. And what you're meant to be saying is, oh my goodness, your freedom is so much greater than freedom from the Romans. The freedom you thought you were going to get is so infinitesimal. Is that the right word? It's so tiny compared to, compared to the, the ginormous freedom that you're going to get through the Savior. What Jesus came to bring you is far greater than what you had set your hopes on. And so they're going, well, we had hoped he was going to be the Redeemer. And what you're meant to see when you're reading this is he's a bigger Redeemer than you ever thought he was going to be. And so friends, let me ask you this, just as we think about where you fit in this. Are your hopes too small? Because as much as they saw who Jesus was, as much as they believed who we were, their hopes weren't big enough. And and there's something that happens throughout this book over and over and over. The people of God have a sense of of the goodness of who God is. And every time God blows their mind and makes it even bigger. Um, we, we, we We don't have an inkling of how great our God really is and how great God's love was for us to send his only son for us. And how great the accomplishment of Jesus on the cross and through the resurrection really is. So verse 22, you see why uh, these guys are taken aback. They said, yes, and besides all this, besides the fact that this great guy had come and we'd hoped he would redeem us, um, these women came and they've amazed us because they went to the tomb and they came back and were like, dude, Jesus' body is not there. So they had gone to the tomb to check it out and make sure that things were taken care of and Jesus is gone. And then they said they had a vision from an angel that said, Jesus is alive. And so they came back and told us this news and we're all scratching our heads going, we don't, we don't really understand what's happening right now. And we don't understand what's happening because it says that Jesus they did not see. So what you see here, these guys, is you see amazement, you see confusion, uh, you see hopes, you see doubts, you see all these things clashing and coming together in the midst of these guys. Uh, the women, though, had not seen Jesus' body. They'd seen a vision that told them that 
In, the, in, this, in this instance, it says that they'd seen a vision of angels that said with the, that Jesus was not among, um, among the dead, but he was among the living. So you're meant to see this, and for these guys, doubt pervades the whole scene. Their, their doubts are there, um, and, and so there's all this kind of tension. And sometimes I think their hopes were too small. Sometimes I think our, our doubts are too big, because ultimately their doubts are going to be resolved as well. Uh, something unusual has definitely taken place, and they know that, but they don't yet understand everything that has taken place. And so here's what's going to happen to the rest of this. There's actually this, this kind of motif that goes through this whole scene of, of sight, where it says, like, you know, Jesus' body the women did not see. And it says they, they, Jesus was there, but they did, not, they did not recognize or see him. And then later what's going to happen is it's going to get flipped, and as they, Jesus begins to talk, their eyes are going to be open, and they're going to see him. So verse 25, Jesus begins that process, and he responds with a re- rebuke of these guys. And he says, oh, foolish ones, oh, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Uh, what is Jesus' criticism? So, well, you didn't, you didn't trust the scriptures. You didn't believe what the Bible said. If you, if you trusted what the Bible said, you would have known these things were going to happen. Uh, that seems like a pretty hard burden to bear, doesn't it? I mean, do you think, like, when Jesus show, shows up again, uh, he's going to look to some of us and say, oh, you are slow to believe. Did you not see all the scriptures and all the things that were there? Um, I don't think we're going to be a whole lot better off than these guys, but maybe, maybe we will. But here's what, what's happening in the scene. The resurrection reality should not have been hidden to Jesus' disciples. It had been told about in the scriptures. The fact that the Savior had to die should not have been disguised or hidden to his disciples. The people of God should have known that the Savior had to come and die. And so Jesus now opens their eyes and begins to show them what the scriptures say. I love the way it describes it. It says, um, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Is this not what the scriptures had to say? And so Jesus pushes the the conversation a little bit further and says, let me take you a little bit further. You were right. Jesus was a prophet. He was mighty in word. He was mighty in deed. Uh, he, He was condemned and he was crucified. But that's not the end of the story. All of that was predicted and prophesied and all of that is pointing to a greater purpose. And so Jesus is gonna unpack that for him. And he's going to, and it says that he took all the scriptures and, and showed them from Moses through the prophets. In that day, what they saw as Moses was the opening books of the Bible. And the prophets were the, the last part of the Old Testament. So when you said Moses and the prophets, what they're saying is the whole Bible that they had at that time. The whole of Hebrew scriptures. And so Jesus started at the beginning and walked through the end and said, let me just show you how clear it was that this was about what was about to happen. Uh, I, I, part of me, like I, we could spend a week, uh, I mean a week, we could spend a, a, a month walking through passages of the Old Testament, just unpacking these. We're not going to. I just want to give you one, one of the most famous ones, Isaiah 53. I want to read just a few uh, verses out of Isaiah 53 here um, as we think about how the Old Testament told them that Jesus was, was going to die. Isaiah 53, uh, 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
By his wounds, we are healed. For we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the sin of us all. Yet it was the will of his Father to crush him. He's put him to grief. And yet, the Savior poured out his soul to death. He was numbered among the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for them. Is that not a beautiful section that depicts exactly what Christ did? By his wounds, we get healed. By our sin, he was killed. And it was the Lord's will, it was the Lord's desire to pour out that punishment on Jesus because that was the only way of rescue for you and for me. And so he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with those who were sinful. And he bore our sins to the cross so that we might be numbered with him who is righteous. That's the gospel. Notice the word that Jesus used. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things? It was necessary. It was needed because that's the only way we could be saved. And so Christ willingly, it said, he endured the cross for the joy set before him. The joy wasn't pain. The joy wasn't suffering. The joy wasn't dying. The joy was your salvation. Christ endured it all that you and I might be saved, not by anything righteous we have done, but because of the righteous and voluntary death that he gave. But then he goes on to say that it was necessary that Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory. Why? Because the cross isn't the final word, is it? The cross, Jesus was on the cross and he died for the cross and he uttered, it is finished. And he bled out and they pulled him off the cross and they put him in a tomb and they rolled a stone over the tomb. And on the third day, he kicked sin and death in the face and he walked out. That was the final word because he had to enter into his glory. The word glory uh, means, it means something that's, that's weighty, that's given, given majesty, that's given authority. And so Jesus, after suffering and after rising, had victory over sin and death. 1 Corinthians tells us. And in his victory, he bore the authority over all things. And so he entered into his glory. And what we know is he's now been raised and he sits at the right hand of the Father from which one day he will return and he will reign in all of his glory here on earth. And we get to enjoy all of that. But this is predicted all through scripture. Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Friends, Jesus isn't done. His kingdom has been inaugurated, it's been started, but he's coming back one day and he will reign and all of his enemies will be vanquished. There will be a footstool that he'll rest his feet on. No longer having to do any work there. Daniel 7 says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He's a ruler that they were walking with on that road that day. Luke 21, Jesus himself said, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. This is no mere traveler on a road walking with these two men. This is the King of glory who will one day return, who had stepped out of the tomb. Verse 27 says that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning whom? himself. Jesus was kind of a big deal 
right? He looks at the scriptures. Thanks, Ron Burgundy. He looks at the scriptures and he says, I'm going to walk you through from Moses through all the prophets from the beginning of the Bible through all the way through. And I'm going to show you how all of this concerns, he says, himself. Because he was the focal point of it all. And he wanted them to understand that this was not an accident. This wasn't like a, a do-over. The cross wasn't a, wasn't a deal where series like, oh, recalculating. You know, like it, it wasn't something where God had a plan and things got awry and God's like, well, I don't know. I guess we'll put Jesus on the cross. This was something that from the beginning of time, he purposed in his heart that Jesus would die to save you and me and to bring him glory as he moved into his kingdom. This is the interpretive key for the whole Bible. It all points to Jesus. When we as a church talk about being Christ-centered or gospel-centered, this is what we're talking about. We get it from Jesus, where he's saying all of it points to him. And friends, we get to the New Testament now, and, and if all the Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus, all the New Testament points back to Jesus. And he's the center of it all. And in our day, it's become popular to question the scriptures or twist the Bible to make it fit our expectations for what God ought to do and how the world ought to work, which seems a really strange approach. Because you'd think if there's a God that we would sort of have to conform to, who, to his standard. But we sometimes twist things and say, well, no, God, you need to work it the way we think it ought to go. If God never contradicts you, you're likely not worshiping the real God. And what Jesus is trying to help them see is, let me show you God's plan and how it's worked out for all time. Um, friends, Christians for, for all of his, church history have sought to trust the scriptures and to see Christ in them that they might know how to live. Uh, the Bible is far more than a self-help book or just a source of inspirational quotes to, quotes to post. Um, and Jesus is showing the unfolding plan, uh, un, unfolding plan that God's had throughout all of history. So it seems the meeting's over and Jesus is going to move on, but it's late and uh, you're supposed to practice hospitality in that culture and it could be dangerous for Jesus to travel at night. So they're like, oh no, dude, stay with us. Don't, don't go. And so Jesus comes back in and he probably was just seeing how interested they were, but they urged him to stay. And, and he begins, it says he breaks bread. And we don't really know why Jesus is the one breaking bread because he was the guest, but there likely is a sense that they were starting to clue in and go, this guy might be a dude. Like, this guy seems like he knows his way around. Maybe we should give him the, the, the honor of breaking bread. And as he began to, to break bread, something clicked with him. The physical act of, of breaking bread. And this wasn't a reenactment of the, uh, of the Last Supper because, um, because there's no wine there and there's no blessing that's given over it. But it, it probably was, it is in the way Luke's told the stories in a very liturgical way, that he took and he blessed, and he broke, and he distributed the bread that probably recalls like the feeding of the 5,000. It probably recalls the Last Supper. There's probably echoes of that that they're seeing, and when he does it, their eyes are opened, and they see him for who he is, and what happens? Disappears. Blows my mind. Like, what would that be like? Like, I don't know what to do with that. I don't have a category for that in my brain. I, if you want me to give you like some, you know, you've been to seminary, give us the answer for what that was. Dude, I got nothing. I'd be just as clueless as they were. Like if you're sitting there and you're like taking bread from the dude's hands and you're like, oh, thank. What? Like I think they were, they were stunned by what happened. And you look at immediately what they said. It was like the scales fell off their eyes and immediately they, all the pieces start to come together. And, and they said, did not our hearts 
burn within us when he was teaching us the scriptures? Like, were we not set on fire by the things he was saying? Like when he began to, to explain this to us and he started back here in Genesis and said, well, God created the world. And he did this and there was sin and then there was this and he had to send a savior and there's a sacrificial lamb and all the sacrificial system of lambs dying and all the animals that died on, the, on that were all just to tell you about the death of a Messiah that was gonna come and a human being that was dying on a cross that would no longer have to be any more death, but there'd be one death for all time. They would pay for the sins of all people. And through that one event, Jesus was gonna conquer sin and conquer death and reign forever and come back. And he eventually is gonna reign on earth in all of his glory and authority as the king of all things. And they, they were like, when he started unpacking that, did it not set something on fire inside of us? Were not our hearts burning within us? Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian is that your heart is burning for the gospel. That something about what Jesus did in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, ignites a fire in you that says there's something that can't be ignored here. And that's what happened to these men. Can you imagine the thoughts going on in that room? They, they immediately jumped up and those, you know, it wasn't safe for Jesus to travel. What's it say they do? They hightailed it seven miles back to Jerusalem in the middle of the night, which was dangerous, to go tell the disciples, guess what happened? We saw Jesus. And what happened when they got there? They go, Simon saw him too. He's alive. And they begin to celebrate. And they begin to rejoice. Can you imagine what the rest of the conversation went throughout the rest of the night? And I can't imagine what they talked about. Like, how do you try to sound really smart in that room right then? Where you're like, did you see this coming? I had no idea. You know, like you're trying to figure out how to explain all the stuff that unfolded. Um, I love uh, what one guy, or what Daryl Bach says about this. He says, the curveball has not been thrown to humankind, but to death, sin, and Satan. The Lord is risen. He lives and he's in their midst. God's plan has not been thwarted. The disciples are not abandoned, but commissioned. In a world where many do not know their place, identity, or purpose, the resurrection means that disciples can know that God is at work, that Jesus is alive in glory, and that death is not the end. Is that good news? A life of purpose, an unending relationship with God is possible. In short, resurrection means that humans can have their proper place with God. Jesus is at God's side, and he's also among the people. All that is needed is to believe all that God has promised. So friends, let me ask you this. Do you believe what God has promised? Do you believe it to be true? Let me just, I want to close with four questions for you to just think about. And I just want you to think about these questions as you, in light of this passage and how you might apply it. The first is, is your heart on fire with the good news of Jesus? Is your heart burning within you? People sometimes ask me, how I keep going in a world like it is with all the, the burden that you carry and all the weight that there sometimes is. This is it. The gospel of Jesus, death, and his resurrection is everything. It's the only thing to really hold on to. Nothing else is strong enough to carry you through the drama, through depression, through doubts, through discouragements, like the resurrection of Jesus.
and his victory over sin and over death. That's what keeps us going. Friends, is your, is your heart on fire? Second question. Is your daily habit to breathe on the embers of your faith by looking for Christ in all the Bible? See, if, if God's ignited a, a heart of faith in you, sometimes you have to breathe life on that. Just and, and, and stoke the fire. I love to smoke meat. And one of the things that happens, if you have a long smoke, you smoke low and slow is the saying. And so you get it set at 250 and you leave it there and uh, you want that, that wood to burn and you don't want it to, to fluctuate. But if you get eight or nine hours into a really long smoke, uh, you might see that temperature begin to drop. And you know what you have to do? I get down on my hands and knees and I crack open that little window and I just blow in it a little bit to try to get the wood stirred up. Um, that's, what you, that's, what, that's what a quiet time is. That's what you opening your Bible every day is. It's you opening it going, God, would you, would you make the fire burn in me again? And so we look to the scriptures daily for, and we look for Christ in it. Third, is Jesus your main thing? So what Jesus says is this, is he goes and shows all the scriptures and says how, how they point, all pointed to himself because he was the main thing. And he's meant to be the main thing in our life. I love the passage of uh, uh, the story that's told of Jesus and two ladies and they're working and they're going crazy and Mary and Martha, these two sisters are there and one of them is working to do all the stuff and one of them just stops and sits at Jesus' feet and worships him and acknowledges him and uh, the other sister looks and goes, hey, you gonna make my sister get off her butt and do something? Because we're doing a lot of work over here. And what's Jesus say to her? Martha, Martha, you're, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good thing. Friends, what are you anxious about and troubled about? As I look at the world and we are anxious and troubled about so many things. I think to us what Jesus would say is, there's one thing that's necessary. Choose the good thing. And then lastly, how excited are you to tell others the good news that Jesus is alive? It's what we're called to do. Like the, the disciples and what we're going to see in the book of Acts is the disciples wait and they are commissioned and they are sent. And Christ is going to say, as the Father sent me to become salvation for you, so I am sending you to tell others about Christ. Friends, is this good news to share? Don't you love that Jesus, think about the hours after he was resurrected. What could Jesus have done during that time? I mean, think about the, the greatest event in human history. Think about what Jesus did, all that he suffered, all the pain, all the difficulty, then, then stepping out of a tomb, conquering uh, sin and death, and knowing what all that meant. What is it Jesus could do? You know, he didn't gather his marketing team and come up with a strategy to leverage the momentum. Right? Like, that, that wasn't his response. He didn't go by the high priest's house for a good morning wake-up call. Like, I mean, that's, that's what I would have done. I'd been like, I'd been wanting to go to the high priest's house. I'd been like, how about them apples? <laughs> right? Like, you guys thought you had me, but hello, you know, or maybe I just like done the creepy thing of like staring in a guy's window, the high priest and been like, right here, dude. Like you thought, like I would have wanted to taunt someone. It's not what Jesus did. Hmm. Now Jesus went and sought out two confused disciples who were unsure what to make of it all. And in humility, he walked with them and he drew them out and he answered their questions and he pointed them in the right direction 
What I love about Jesus is that he appeared to, to, to the women, the women who had most passionately mourned his death when he was on a cross and stayed there. He appeared and made them, himself known to them. To John and the disciples who had given up and gone fishing, he went and had a meal with them on the beach. To Peter, who had denied him three times, Jesus went and restored and let him know that, that it's, okay. it's okay. And he reassured him in the midst of his shame that he was still his. He still belonged to him. And Jesus wasn't too distracted. He wasn't too busy. He wasn't too important to sit down with two men and say, let me tell you how great your hope should be. So friends, I don't know where you are today, but I know there's a Savior. We love to sit with people who need great hope and point them in the right direction. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would burn the gospel in our hearts. Father, burn it anew. Burn it fresh. Father, burn it strong. That we might love Jesus more. That we might trust him more. We might tell more of his life and his death and his resurrection. That he might be glorified in us. We pray it in his name. Amen.